Listener Production. Hello, I'm Sasha Barbagat. Welcome to The Briefing. Have you seen that footage of buildings collapsing in China? If you have, they were likely built by Evergrande, the property giant that's gone under. Evergrande uh, was the largest property developer in China, building all kinds of buildings, but mainly residential apartments. And at its peak, it was not necessarily building, but it was sort of taking deposits on over 100 billion US dollars a year worth of properties. Evergrande was once worth hundreds of billions of dollars and its CEO was the richest man in China. Now that man is reportedly under police surveillance. The company has lost 99% of its value and a Hong Kong court has ordered its liquidation. In the second half of today's episode, we find out why Evergrande's collapse is such a big deal and what the knock-on effects for Australia could be. But first, Bensie and Seabird is here with the headlines. It is Monday, February 5. Morning, Sasha. The federal government says drivers will save $1,000 a year on fuel under its long-awaited fuel efficiency standards policy released over the weekend. The policy would place a yearly cap on emissions produced by new vehicles sold in Australia and encourage car makers to invest in electric and low-emissions vehicles. The car makers would have to reduce their emissions by 61% over the next five years. The Albanese government says the emissions standards will improve choice and affordability for new cars in Australia, but others, of course, disagree, Sasha. Mm, Australia is reportedly the last developed country outside of Russia to impose pollution caps on motor vehicles, and the lack of fuel efficiency standards has been blamed for Australia's unusually low take-up of electric vehicles compared with similar countries. And of course, you know, it's not a uh, it's not a policy without a bit of back and forth with the opposition. The coalition is warning the move would kill off the iconic ute in Australia. So prepare for a fight over this. Meanwhile, the Australian Automobiles Association says the policy will increase prices and reduce choice for higher emissions vehicles, which I suppose is part of the point. <laughs> the plan will go up for consultation for a month and the government hopes to have it in place by the 1st of January next year. The US has vowed to continue airstrikes on Iranian-backed militants in Syria and Iraq amid warnings one wrong move in the Middle East could set the region alight. The initial assault was launched on Friday following the killing of three American troops in Jordan. The group Islamic Resistance in Iraq has claimed responsibility. And in an update this morning, our time, US National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said Friday's assault was the beginning, not the end, describing it as an open-ended military campaign. Meantime, airstrikes against Houthi rebels have also been carried out by the US, UK and with support of Australia in Yemen. The group has vowed to retaliate after strikes hit 36 targets across 13 locations. Bensian, there's been quite a big focus on these strikes in Arabic language press over the weekend. Uh, Some were criticising the move for bringing more instability to the region. And Sullivan has also refused to rule out strikes in Iran, which could prove a pretty costly escalation if we see that happen. Absolutely. It's a really dangerous set of circumstances for everyone, really, because if the US and Iran actually went to war with each other, which is the sort of worst possible 
case scenario, which no one really wants, um, obviously that would be horrendous for the world. Victoria's police commissioner has labelled the actions of a group of protesters who targeted officers at Melbourne's Midsummer Pride March as abhorrent. About 100 police members, some with their children, had been marching in St Kilda yesterday when they were confronted by a group of 50 people and pelted with paint bombs. Here's Victorian Police Commissioner Shane Patton. To detract from what should be a day of pride for the LGBTIQA plus community and the Victorian community is quite abhorrent and I have nothing but contempt for them. Mm, a statement from Vic Pohl claims the group surrounded the officers on all sides to try to stop them from participating in the event. A 34-year-old man was arrested. One witness has told the ABC some police that moved in to disperse the protesters tore their banners and threw punches, Benson. It's worth noting this witness when spoken to by the ABC was saying we, as in we, the group of protesters who were involved in this action. So just a little uh, sidebar there. Sure. And there's a really long history behind what's led up to today now, which is that uh, there's a lot of people in the queer community that are quite angry, furious even, that um, police are involved in pride marches because uh, way back to 1978 with the first Mardi Gras in Sydney, there were a lot of um, queer people who were bashed and arrested And uh, there has been a long history of brutality against uh, queer people in Australia by the police. That said, I think my view as a queer person is that it's a bit like rainbow capitalism um, in the sense that uh, I'd rather see brands celebrate LGBTIQA plus stuff if they want to rather than not. Um, and I'd rather see police march with us uh, in these marches because also there are a lot of queer people in the police. And I think the more that institutions show their open support for members of marginalised communities, the better. And a Russian cosmonaut has set a record for the longest time spent in space. Oleg Kononenko yesterday spent his 878th day orbiting the Earth, beating his fellow Russian Gennady Padalka. Kononenko is expected to eventually spend more than 1,100 days in space. He hits the 1,000-day mark late in September, and he's on the International Space Station orbiting around 420 kilometres above the Earth. I can't think of anything worse, Bensian, quite frankly. (laughs) I went to scuba dive the other weekend, and it was wonderful, but also I felt very claustrophobic not being able to just breathe air and I understand mm. you know it's it's a little bit different to um uh, to being an astronaut but my husband and I were talking afterwards saying if it felt like that 10 meters underwater imagine how it feels thousands and thousands and thousands of kilometers in space this guy Kononenko he's he was speaking to the media and he said I'm proud of all my achievements but I'm more proud that the record for the total duration of human stay in space is still held by a Russian cosmonaut so <laughs> He also said that he's just going out into space to do his job and it's not a big deal, but he's really happy that a Russian at least has the record. So good on Kononenko. Good luck on those thousand days. As I said, I can't think of 
anything worse. Uh, thanks so much, Bensian, for joining us for the headlines today. Next up is our deep dive into the collapse of Chinese building giant Evergrande. At one time, Evergrande was the biggest property developer in the world, but now the Chinese company is $455 billion in debt. Its collapse has been likened to when the Lehman Brothers went under at the start of the 2008 financial crisis, and there are fears the repercussions could be just as far-reaching. Earlier this week, a Hong Kong court ordered Evergrande's liquidation. The judge saying enough is enough after the company repeatedly failed to come up with a plan to restructure its debts. But it is unknown what will happen to the company on mainland China. Throughout the 2000s and 2010s, Evergrande borrowed heavily to finance building hundreds of tower blocks in order to house millions of migrants moving from rural areas to cities. And that all came to an end in 2020 when the Chinese government cracked down on the real estate market, saying property is to be lived in, not to be speculated on. Evergrande defaulted on its debts a year later. And now economist Richard Holden from the University of New South Wales is here with us to explain what the collapse could mean. Richard, thanks so much for joining us. Can we start at the beginning? What is Evergrande and how has it fallen so far? Evergrande uh, was the largest property developer in China, um, building all kinds of buildings, but mainly residential apartments. And at its peak, it was not necessarily building, but it was sort of taking deposits on over 100 billion US dollars a year worth of properties. In uh, mid-2021, it got into financial trouble. And that, that came off the back of some reforms by the Chinese government trying to limit the uh, kind of property bubble that was that was clearly developing or had developed in China. So this is the kind of macro prudential regulation that uh, a body like APRA does in Australia. They did sort of similar sorts of things. Um, that really put the squeeze on companies like Evergrande and there were others uh, as well, like Country Garden, but Evergrande got hit pretty hard. And they defaulted in September, they defaulted on some of their loan payments. And they've been, in a sense, functionally bankrupt ever since, trying to work out a deal with creditors. And in the last few days, uh, a Hong Kong bankruptcy court finally said, we don't think that you're going to get to a deal with your creditors. In fact, the judge in her ruling even said, quote, enough is enough, and um, pushed them into liquidation. And, um, you know, now it's a really a question of um, how they're going to be wound up owing about 300 billion US dollars in debt, partially to international bondholders, but also to a lot of uh, internal Chinese banks. You said this is a Hong Kong court's decision. What's going to happen then on the mainland of China? Can Evergrande have a presence still on the mainland or is this going to flow on there? And, you know, could the government potentially bail the company out? Yeah, it's a very good question. No, it applies to Evergrande's operations everywhere and there's essentially a deal between, not quite between Hong Kong and China because uh, China would would say Hong Kong's part of China. But um, there is a question about whether Chinese authorities will basically honour the court's decision uh, although I think most people think that they will. And there is a question about a bailout. I'm very sceptical that there will be a government bailout of Evergrande itself. Evergrande got into this really because 
the Chinese government was fed up with the kind of sort of rampant speculation that was going on in the property market and was trying to rein things in. So bailing out Evergrande would really push in the other direction. It would create what economists call moral hazard. You know, it would basically say, well, you can take really risky behaviours and don't worry about it. The government's going to be there to pick up the pieces. So that seems unlikely to me. What is certainly possible is if any of the Chinese banks that lent to Evergrande get into trouble as a result of the default, it's it's pretty unclear that they're going to recover very much from this. There are properties, sort of half-completed properties strewn over 200 different cities or so in China. It's rather unclear that they're going to recover very much. So banks will take some losses and almost for sure the Chinese government would step in if they thought that banks were starting to you know, take losses significant enough that they were going to go under. You mentioned there all these uh, empty or half-constructed apartment towers all over China. What actually happens to the people who bought into these buildings with their own hard-earned? What's the impacts for them? Well, it could be devastating. Um, And again, if the government doesn't um, do something about that, then there's going to be a whole lot of people, regular folks, mums and dads across China who've lost their you know, life savings or or the lion's share of their life savings as a result of this. In fact, one of the problems with Evergrande and it applies to some other property companies in in China is they were acting a bit like a shadow bank. They were doing bank-like functions even though they weren't a bank and weren't subject to any of the regulations that are banks. So what were they doing? They were were taking short-term deposits from people and basically putting them into long-term construction projects. So we're all familiar with the idea of, you know, buying off the plan in Australia or something like that. You know, you might put down a deposit when the building sort of, you know, partially completed or half completed. There's a lot of regulation around how that works. Money goes into escrow, the various protections and stuff. Uh, it appears that Evergrande was taking deposits on projects that that weren't even started and really acting like a bank that was speculating a great deal. And so that could have a really bad effect on the, you know, the poor folks who put their money into that. Were they using those deposits because they were running out of money and they needed to fund all of their big plans and projects? Or was there another reason behind that? Yeah, in the end, that's what they were doing. Um, It appears, and again, there's not a lot of transparency about this, so there's a little bit of detective work that goes into sort of piecing this all together. But it appears that earlier on when they were solvent or, or appeared to be solvent, they were just doing it as a way to basically expand their business more rapidly. This is like getting free debt. You know, you're borrowing money and not paying anyone any interest for it. And then you can build more. So, you know, you get $50 billion worth of deposits and you say, great, let's let's build more buildings. Let's build buildings in more cities and so on. So I think they were using it to sort of expand too rapidly. And of course, this is an age old story. You know, company tries to grow too fast with a lot of leverage. You get a bit of a downturn in the market and all of a sudden that leverage turns against you. It was magnifying your gains on the way up, but it magnifies your losses on the way down. Evergrande is being talked about by some as kind of a canary in a coal mine and that this is a sign that China's economy is floundering. Would that be your assessment? I think China's economy is floundering, but I'm not sure that this is the thing that sort of tips the hat to that. Um, There's a basic structural problem with the Chinese economy, which, which roughly goes as follows. 
China invests or has over the last 30 years or so invested between about 40 and 45% of its GDP. So if you think about like what national income is, takes around 45% of that and plows that into investments of various kinds. Now, when China was a 1 trillion, 2 trillion, 3 trillion, 4 trillion US dollar economy and was very underdeveloped and had very little infrastructure, you know, that's that's pretty great and they build a whole lot of stuff and in many ways that's that's part of what accounts for China's incredible success and very rapid rise. China's now an 18 or 19 trillion US dollar economy, so you sort of do the arithmetic and you sort of figure out they've got to come up with, say, $8 billion, $8 trillion rather, uh, US dollars a year of productive investment projects. And when you've built as much high-speed rail as you can possibly imagine, you've built all sorts of other useful infrastructure, it's really hard to come up with $8 trillion worth of productive investments. And if you do, you've got to go and do it again next year and then you've got to do it again the year after and so on. And so it's not really surprising that some of that money or a good chunk of that money goes into unproductive things like a housing bubble. You know, the flip side of that is consumption in China is about half what private consumption is in a country like Australia or the US. And as I say, investment's about double what it is in a country like Australia or the US. So the Chinese government needs to flip that equation somehow. They need to basically double consumption and halve investment to get an economy that's more sustainable when it's the size that it is. I mean, by many measures, the Chinese economy in total is the same size as the US economy in total. This is a big economy, even though on a per capita basis, of course, it's not as wealthy as a country like the US. And so uh, whether this is a canary in the coal mine uh, is is one thing. I I certainly hope that it's a wake-up call for the Chinese authorities to realise that that they've got a structural problem with their economy that's totally unsustainable. Are there going to be any broader implications for Australia after this? One obvious implication is that, um, you know, there may well be less construction and if there's less construction, there's less steel. If there's less steel, there's less iron ore. And so it will probably likely have a medium run uh, impact on on some of our major export industries like like iron ore. In the short term, there's talk of possible stimulus that so might even go in the other direction. Who knows? I don't personally see you know some sort of catastrophic drop off in that. I and mean, we've got, for instance, iron ore prices at incredibly high, sort of historically high levels. Demand has been incredibly strong. That was never going to be a long run sustainable thing. I, I think our Exporters in those areas understand that it was, you know, another one of these periodic sort of super booms and it was going to come back to normal levels at some point. So will it have an impact on on Australia? Yeah, I think it'll have an impact on our export earnings. It'll have an impact on our company tax take. But given that those have been at abnormally high levels, that really shouldn't come as as a big surprise. What about globally? Is there a risk that it could push us into another recession? I think not, but the scenario where that's possible is if there's a real hit to the Chinese banking and financial industry. So if a bunch of Chinese banks get into trouble working out these $300 billion odd worth of loans, if they take a big haircut and if it turns out that their lending behaviour hasn't been prudent, you know, you could get a, you know, a, a wave of banking collapses and that could reverberate throughout the global economy, if that were to happen, it could tip China into a recession. The really worst case scenario is you get a kind of uh, 
you know, 2008 financial crisis in the US type event happening in China. I suspect that's really quite unlikely given the nature of the lending and the nature of the Chinese banking system and also the fact that it would be staggering if the Chinese authorities stood by and just watched that and let that happen. It's also much less clear that the banks that have been lending to companies like Evergrande are sort of systematically connected in the way that a Lehman Brothers was in the US where a bankruptcy of Lehman triggered this mass contagion and all of a sudden we figured out that even Goldman Sachs, for instance, that was on the correct side of the bets on the US housing market could go under because of the Lehman bankruptcy and, you know, very nearly did indeed. That seems less likely in China, but one of the caveats with all of this is we don't have the same kind of visibility uh, there as external observers that we do into the banking system in countries like Australia or the US. That was economist Richard Holden from the University of New South Wales there. That is all for today's podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Make sure you check back the Savo at three for our afternoon edition of The Briefing. And in the meantime, be sure to get in touch with us here if you have an idea for an episode or you want to have your say on something we've covered. You can head to our Instagram page and send us a message or join our broadcast channel behind The Briefing. Simple as that, The Briefing on Instagram. Listener.